Welcome once again to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I am pleased and I'm honored to have you as our uh, as our guests, really, as uh, and as I try to uh, change my normal function to that of moderator, uh, as well as commentator, uh, as we do with all of our shows that we have up here at www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. We are up 24-7. This show will be added to the list. If you go to our website and hit the link for our podcast, this will be the first show on there, assuming you're doing it uh, within the time frame that it is up there. Uh, we also have our radio loop link, which is kind of this analogish feeling uh, sort of way of listening to us. You pick up the show wherever it might happen to be in a loop that it's playing in on a separate, uh, a separate computer here in the studio. One way or the other, we're very glad to have you for a, um, a very interesting, I think, uh, forum that we're having today. Our forums, our Noble Hearts forums, this is about the I don't know, maybe perhaps the eighth or ninth that we've had, uh, consists of guys that I met, that I went to school with at a rather special place in Manhattan called Regis High School, still there, still pumping out a bunch of really smart, thoughtful people. And uh, the three members of our panel today that I have here are perfect examples of that kind of thoughtfulness. Uh, all of us, uh, all of them have been here uh, on the show before. Uh, you know, uh, most recently, you got to uh, celebrate some time with John D'Amelio. Uh, John basically is... Uh, a hell of a writer. Uh, he is um, he is the professor. Uh, the, well, listen to that, professor emeritus of gender and women's studies and of history at the University of Illinois in Chicago. is a pioneer in developing the field of gay and lesbian studies. He is the author or editor of more than half a dozen books. Um, uh, the uh, Policy, sexual politics, sexual communities, the making of homosexual minority in America. There was a Bayard Ruskin uh, piece that he did, a book on Bayard Ruskin, I believe, which was a National Book Award. Uh, uh, it, it was in line for, uh, for an award for that. And the most recent one, uh, and we were discussing this on the show recently that John did, um, uh, it was, John, give me the name again, exactly the name. Memories of a Gay Catholic Boyhood, Coming of Age in the 60s. Isn't that one? And John has this thing about subtitles, by the way. Just, just be aware of that. Both John's book, Intimate Matters and Coming of Age, both of those were recent, well, not recently, but both have been quoted. Well, Coming of Age was quoted recently by the Supreme Court, by justices in the Supreme Court in decisions that were being made. Uh, of some consequence, obviously. Uh, Bill, Bill is uh, here again. Bill has been with us. Bill Mulligan. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how many times, and uh, he has always contributed wonderfully to these events. 
Uh, he is the professor emeritus, a professor emeritus at Murray State University, has taught U.S. and world history for the last 20 years, author of several books, dozens of scholarly articles and presentations, uh, a Fulbright scholar in Ireland, and received a Hibernian Research Award from the Kushwa Center at the University of Notre Dame to support his research on the Irish diaspora. Um, most revealing about Bill, by the way, and I'm just gonna do this as part of the introduction. It may make sense later, but you'll understand why. If you look at the list of courses he has taught while at Murray State, this gives you an idea of what is driving this guy from the inside. I'm just gonna mention them now. History of Ireland, Irish diaspora, Military History of the United States, Introduction to Public History, History of the United States Constitution, The American Experience Up to 1865, Development of Historical Thinking, and then Readings in the United States History. I throw that out and, and it'll make a little more sense why as the show, as the show goes on. Uh, those of you who have joined us for these forums before know probably best of all, uh, Dr. Charles Webble. Charles right now is, well, has been, continues to be, uh, come on, come up here, there you go, uh, professor and guarantor of the School of International Affairs at the State University of New York in Prague, a five-time Fulbright scholar. He has published 13 books, many of which deal with issues of war and peace. He is now working on volume two of his three-book trilogy, modestly titled The Fate of This World and the Future of Humanity, as well as a novel, uh, Academia, with three Ks. Uh, there is an interesting piece that I pulled out, and let me see if I can find this. I want to get this up, up front also. Uh, there was a, an interview being done at the, uh, from, from your school recently, and uh, this was at the end of December of last year, and whoever was interviewing you, Charles, uh, asked a question, and, and the question went like this. Last year you published two books, Peace and Conflict Studies and the World is Idea. Are you planning to publish any more new books in the future? And your response was... Uh, yes, in 2021, I published two major 1,000-page uh, books in total, Peace and Conflict Studies, and, and then and The World as Idea is in the first volume of the projected trilogy, modestly titled The Fate of This World, etc. I'm now working on the second volume, The Reality of This World. The third volume, still quoting you, will be a shorter book, more accessible to a generally educated public with the working title, The World. I, I, I throw that out there as something that may have some bearing as we go future, as we go further into uh, today's forum. Um, where to start with this? There's a thousand different ways to, to talk about a bunch of guys who write and who write well and who are well known for writing. Uh, a forum populated by accomplished writers uh, could go in any number of different directions. And before the hour is out, it probably will. But I'd like to start off with a simple observation. Not a, a heavily researched theory, just my observations about writers and writing. And I say this as a writer of fiction, who knows a number of non-fiction non writers, you guys, and a, and a number of others that winds up from our class as well. Here's the observation. There's a kind of fundament, fundamental narcissism shared by all writers, a need to talk about who we are 
and what we believe in a formalized way. Rather than run the risk of just standing there naked in front of the world and being judged for whatever it is we may be, which is the situation most people find themselves in, we use the tools and formalities of the written word to present our thoughts and ourselves at arm's length and in the best possible light. And we ask the world to judge us specially and kindly, but we also ask the world to learn something from us. It sounds like a something, I don't know, I was trying not to make that too complicated a formula, but I believe that's largely how most writers are and function. John, D'Amelio, would, would, would you agree with some or any of that at all? Uh, no, I would actually, well, I have a reservation, but I would mostly disagree with it, Go at ahead. least in relationship to me. Okay. I mean, I have no idea whether it's actually true for many other writers, but what pushed me into writing, uh, and this has started happening in my mid to late 20s, was this sensation that there is this the, there are these stories and these understandings of us history that need to be known if we're going to make change in the world in a way that would move us more towards social justice and equality and for the overwhelming amount of what i've written it's never occurred to me that it's that it's been about me in some way it's really the content i I'm hoping people get something from this content. Yeah. Now, having said that, I will also say that in this most recent period of my life, where uh, now there are many other people writing the kinds of history that I was write, started writing 40, 50 years ago, my most recent book was a memoir. It was about me. Yeah. And... If I think about that book, it felt in the writing of it very differently from everything else I had written. And it does feel like, well, I guess you could describe that as narcissistic, given that I'm writing about myself. And God, if you don't like if you don't like my other books, you don't like, you know, the life of Bayard Rustin, or you don't like this or that. But if you don't like this book, does that mean you don't like me? Well, that's that, that's uh, the, there's the question. Th that's right. the, that's the rub. But that's that question has never occurred to me until oh. I wrote this most recent book. That's it really feels like it has no relevance to anything else that I've written. Bill, does so, that have any? Does that have any? Uh, does that resonate with you at all? I would largely agree with John ah. in that uh, I have always thought of what I've written as sharing what I've learned about our past and our society in the hope that it will help people see more clearly uh, where we've been and where we need to go. And that it's been kind of a form of teaching or a form of advocacy, but done through a nonfiction uh, forum where you, there are rules about sources and documentation and yeah. footnotes. It's not just, I think this, um, it's, this is what I have learned about our collective past. The one thing I might suggest is it's not quite as impersonal as John makes it sound. I mean, you know, why, why does Mulligan write so much about Irish people in the world? Hmm. I wonder, 
know, why, why have I been concerned about inclusion and exclusion in communities, knowing the history of Irish Catholics? Both you, both of you guys, John, so you and Bill, both of you guys are writing about your, your lives. You write about yourselves. You're writing about your history. I mean, that's pretty obvious, yet, no? Oh, yeah, but, yeah, but you do it, I think, as John was saying, in an indirect way, I mean, until you get like a memoir. Obviously, it's personal. Of course, but you know, yeah. you, you we we write about how we choose the topics we choose can be driven by our own interests, but not always. Um, you know, my book on shoemakers and the family lives of shoemakers, yeah, you know, had a purely academic origin. I was interested in um, Talcott Parsons' uh, social structural differentiation theory. Uh, read some books that dealt with how that affected industrial workers in England and thought really that I thought should there should be an American study to see if that also applied uh, to industrialization in the United States. And I had no background in shoemaking or, um, you know, most of the people I wrote ended up writing about in that book were, uh, you know, Native-born American Methodists. <laughs> so, is there is there no place for narcissism in in the in the psyche of the of a good writer? Is there Charles? Is is would yeah. that be the case? I, yes, and I would like to go back to the beginning. You mentioned Regis High School. Yes. My first quote published unquotes article was a poem I wrote in freshman English in class one e where there was a contest, actually a popularity contest, to see which student's poem would get the most votes from the other students. And for some peculiar reason, which I still haven't figured out, mine did. And I don't know if that was true in 1D and 1A or 1B or 1C, but it was true in 1E. And then the person who got the most votes were the most popular poem and the most popular short story got published in uh, some journal whose name I've long since forgotten. That was narcissistic. I was writing about my existential anxiety regarding nuclear war, yeah. but in a disguised, camouflaged, and somewhat reified way as a poem. Um, Several years later, as an undergraduate and as a graduate student after that, I published a series of articles in the local campus newspapers and uh, graduate student journals. And then there was a long lull, the process of becoming an academic writer in contrast with being a writer of myself. Yeah. And that lull lasted much longer than I had hoped. I had hoped as a graduate student to be able to publish some of the philosophical pieces I was writing, and I was unsuccessful. But I learned a very important lesson in the process of struggling to be published. That lesson is, as a friend of mine, Stephen Brunner, who's also been in this show yeah. to me at the time, Vable, it's contacts, contacts, and contacts. And I thought, before I was corrected, it was content, content, <laughs> and content. 
I, I, you're all laughing. I could no, not no, 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 no. I'm, I'm laughing. I'm laughing painfully. Go on. <laughs> yeah. I could not have been more wrong. I wrote as a graduate student and as a lecturer at Berkeley, my first job, what I thought were highly erudite, extremely well-written professional articles, whether you're being published by the top journals, which in that at that time were in philosophy and intellectual history for me, and they were rejected. And I inquired why, and they said it has nothing to do with content. You should try this other journal in the field. It's, and this is the motto of publishers who will reject you for reasons of anything but content, it's not right for us. Perhaps some of you have heard that expression before. John is nodding his head. Um, it was a painful learning lesson. And then, for reasons also out of my control, I became executive editor at Columbia University Press in the early 1980s. Mm. And I developed the contacts and connections that led to my first three published articles and my first published book, all of which were based on connections. I mean, the content was fine, but that was sort of irrelevant. It's I got to meet important journal editors and important publishers because of my position. And through that, I parlayed that into my first significant scholarly publications. And after that, I've had much less of a problem. But for those of you listening who've had similar experiences of being rejected, rejected, and rejected, as difficult as it may sound, and I know there's an, a deep-level narcissism in all of us that gets hurt by rejection, most of the time, it's not about what you've written. Most of the time, it's about the editor and what the editor wants to publish. Yeah. And if what you've written is consistent with what the editor wants to publish, you're not on first base, you're not on second base, you're on third base. And it took more than a decade for me to learn that lesson. And I encourage, again, writers listening to this, not to give up, but instead hone your skills while at the same time expanding your contacts in the publishing world. John, you ever get uh, you ever get turned down by a publisher? Uh, yeah, I mean they're <laughs> yeah. you know because I mean and it, well, I'll let me put it this way. Actually, in some cases, you know, I have what knowledge did I have of a publishing industry minus zero? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And my first book got published because an editor approached me, not because I had approached an editor. How'd that happen? Uh, I was giving a presentation at a conference, a history conference, and the editor of a press saw that saw what my topic was, and this relates now to what Charles says. Yeah. It was consistent with what they had been recently publishing, and so he approached me and said, "Is this part of a larger project? We would we might be very interested in it." So, uh, you know, that's the way it happened. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of later books were published uh, because I had, you know, an, a contact with an editor and asked, does this interest you? And they said yes. 
Um, so, you know, it, it has, it has varied over the time. It started one way when I had no relationship to writing in a publishing industry yeah. and it's developed in other directions as I've, as Charles suggested, had more contacts because I can make better judgment as to who might be interested in this or who might not be interested in this. General question. Yeah, I'd like if, to if, underscore go on, that I'm sorry, for yes. a second. Um, um, I think for young academics or young writers, speaking at conferences is an excellent way to make contacts. Publishers send publishers representatives are often there scouting. They I've had letters or emails. Someone saw a program that I had something on. Would you be? Is this part of a larger project? I mean, you don't have to sit. You know, you you can create contacts by getting out and sharing your work at conferences and other public forums. And it's good because you get feedback. It helps you improve. Um, but, you know, so, but it does, at some point, you will get inquiries, you know, where people are interested in, um, in, in what you're doing. You know, I was on an editorial board at Wayne State Press, and the uh, subject came up that we, we had sort of not as many books in the pipeline for our series as... as would be ideal. And I mentioned a collection of Civil War letters I had used for an interpretive program at a state park. Well, that became Badger Boy in Blue, <laughs> an edited collection of letters that the New York Times listed a few years ago as one of the five best books by a homesick person. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think was referring to the author of the letters, not, not to me. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> And the other thing about this um, narcissism, if you don't have a healthy sense of yourself, you cannot function as an academic effectively. You can't stand up in front of a classroom and talk for an hour or 75 minutes on a topic, offering information and insight and grade papers, put your work out. You have to have some kind of self-confidence or, or healthy ego, whether it rises to the level of full-blown narcissism I, I, or not. I, I may have used uh, a, rather, a rather strong word there just to get the conversation. Let, let's say yeah, self-awareness no, might be a have, little better. You have to have a healthy ego. Why else would you say, here, world, I have something to tell you that you need to know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that's it. But the other thing here, okay, what I'm getting from all of you, well, I'm, I'm being Charles, I, I'm sure you could jump in on this anytime you want, but I'm hearing certainly from, from John and Bill the notion that I, I don't think you're trying to say it's not what you've written, it's not the quality, it's who you know and when you know it. Clearly, that's not what you're trying to, to, to that's not the bottom line of what you're saying. But at the same time, also, I think um, as much as you've been talking about contacts, content. Uh, if we're talking to, maybe we're talking to some students. Uh, I don't know who we're talking. We could be talking to anyone in the world. We have, by the way, we have a big listening group in Germany. I don't know why that's the case, but we have a lot of listeners uh, to Central Left ra uh, Radio in Germany. Um, what is it that people could be doing to uh, better hone their, let's, let's call it academic writing skills. Let's, let's, let's stick with the field that, that you three guys are largely familiar with. John, you more so going a little, uh, you know, with your memoir and everything else going outside of that. How do people become both better writers and better marketers? Is there a way of doing both simultaneously? Mm -hmm. 
Or is one, must one perceive the other? I don't a, know. A very fine line to thread because if you spend the time needed to write for an academic audience in a clear way, you're taking time away from marketing. The publisher's job is to market. The writer's job is to create. Right. Unfortun unfortunately, the publishing industry with the last generation or two has become, from my point of view as an insider, much less academic writer friendly and much more marketing driven. And the marketeers, and I saw this at Columbia University of all places, gradually took over publishing, <clears throat> even academic publishing, even at the most ivory tower publishing houses. They wanna know upfront who the market is. There's a famous adage in publishing, when a writer approaches an editor or an agent, the writer has to be prepared to answer 10 questions, seven of which deal with sales and marketing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think you've seen a trend, particularly in university presses, to go to develop a strong local history or regional history list. I know at Wayne State, the series I was involved in, the Great Lakes Book Series, was regional history, a combination of academic and popular books. A couple of, like we had one book on lighthouses of the Great Lakes. It sold like 20,000 copies and funded a lot of other books that did not um, sell so well. And so I think you've seen university presses, I think, respond to, in part to what Charles is saying by diversifying, they don't just publish academic books anymore. They almost all have uh, a popular branch, whether it's a separate imprint or a series or something where the books are explicitly geared um, to a popular audience. And yeah, I, every questionnaire I ever get from a publisher, um, the, there's a lot of questions about market, what are the competing texts, Would this, could this be used for classroom adaptation? because the library market has shrunk significantly from when we were undergraduates. Hmm. There was a time, I think, when an academic book could reasonably expect to sell a 1,000 copies if it got good reviews with the university library market and some individual sales. As library budgets have been slashed the last 40 years, that market has shrunk significantly. Hmm. And so... Fortunately, printing technology has changed. So you're seeing more and more print on demand, short press runs, multiple printings. I mean, I know Charles probably knows at least as much, if not more, than I do about this, but I've seen huge changes in this business side of, of academic publishing in terms of how it's organized, how many books are printed, um, how long they're expected, how quickly some go into paperback. Yeah, uh, it's becoming very much market driven, but it's also because universities are subsidizing the presses less. Charles, you, you, Charles already spoke about his his first foray into uh, 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 poetry uh, in one. E I was I think I was in one. E you also come to think of it, but whatever. Okay, I don't remember competing in that that thing. We 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 knew from the start, Charles. You probably you know 
would be the, the, the shining star in all things of that, of that nature, all things in the written word. I'm curious to know when everyone in this forum, when all you guys first had any sense that you were a writer. And, and, I, and I'd like to pick up from that point uh, just after we have uh, what we normally do in these forums. We kind of we break things midway and we start the break with a little jazz. Thank you. 
This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Center Left Radio has been here for more than seven consecutive years and more than 800 individual episodes. 800. Think of that. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can. On a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make Centerleft Radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident. And as we enter this final consequences stage of the Trump saga. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Central F Radio, thank you. And we're back. Uh, our forum uh, is about writers and writing. It's been drifting towards things academic largely, and I guess that would make sense given the fact that my, uh, my three panelists here are all, uh, well, they're all, they all have FUDs at the back of their names, PhDs, and, and uh, have uh, written all manner of treatises and, and are published uh, uh, every way, uh, left, right, and, and just uh, widely recognized for the things they've done. And we've been talking about that in the beginning, uh, Dr. Charles Webel. Uh, I know that, uh, that John doesn't like to be called Dr. John DeMille, but we're going to call him John, Dr. John over here anyway. Dr. John, I like going in that direction. Uh, little, little memories there for the 60s, and of course, uh, Dr. Bill Mulligan. Uh, we were talking just before the break about the idea of what set you guys off, what gave you the notion that you could write, was knowing you could write a necessary predicate to becoming what you ultimately became. Did, did you have to know you could write about it before you started doing what you were doing within academia or anywhere else, was the knowledge of communicating it via writing uh, a motivating factor in moving you in the direction you went professionally? Did the two come together naturally? Is it? That, that's a that's a tough question. I'm I'm thinking about that, and 
I was hired, my first job, I was hired to write the history of the town in Northboro, Massachusetts. So, in other words, you, was that your first writing job or your first job, period? My first professional job. Okay. And I was okay. hired to write this, this book-length history of the town from 1638 to about 1975. And um, as a part of that, I began writing articles for the local weekly newspaper on interesting episodes from the community's history. Yeah. And they would publish them in the local newspaper. And I suddenly noticed, you know, I would go to town to do research at the town hall or at the, at the historical society. And people would stop me on the street and say, I really enjoyed that piece you wrote about uh, Judah Manish. I always wondered how he came to Northborough. Huh. And because the, the the mystery was he he's in the old Congregational Church Cemetery from the 1780s. Rabbi Judah Monish is on his <laughs> headstone. How did a rabbi come to be buried in central New England in the 18th century? Well, it turns out his brother-in-law was the minister in that town, and he had come to live with him in his old age. But he was professor of Hebrew at Harvard. Oh my! And wrote the wow. first Hebrew language textbook published in North America. My goodness. And he's buried in this little town. But but wait but wait wait wait! You're, you're, you're not answering the, the original question here. Go on, yeah. <laughs> but people people well, I get a little bit astray. I'm, no, that's I, okay. I that's okay. Um, but then yeah, you know, people are reading what I write and they like it and they're yeah, asking yeah. questions and they want to talk about it, and they would say, "But what are you going to do next?" Like you know, sort of. You know what, what, and so that was, I think, a strong incentive that there were people, regular people, who were um, interested in what I had to say and what I was finding. But what I'm saying, but your job was to write. Your first job was to write. Clearly, you must have known you were a writer or had some some predicate activity, some other well, training. I was, I, How I was you... encouraged by my uh, undergraduate, my graduate advisor, my mentor. She okay. she had been approached about writing the book. Yeah. And uh, she said, well, I don't have time for it, but I know a bright young man who can do it. Yeah. And when she told me that, I said, who, who is this? Who is this bright young man? <laughs> and she laughed and said, it's you. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. so we went out and met the people there. And she, no, she had, I think a lot of us would admit, having a mentor who believes in you in this, in this profession is, can be really helpful. Yeah. And Tamara really believed in me. And she uh, encouraged me and was very supportive. A paper I wrote in her seminar was was the first pub, professionally published piece I had. It's an article on divorce practice in the 19th century. Um, but I guess while I, have, while I have the floor, one funny story. Originally, the book was going to be my dissertation. Okay. And, well, the funding for it had to be approved in the town meeting in which every citizen of Northborough could participate. <laughs> literally. And so they literally. present okay. this proposal, yeah. and there's this... You know, at that time, I was 25. So this 25-year-old kid is going to, we're going to give him all this money to write the history of our town. And this old guy got up and said, I hear at the university, they write things called dissertations, and no one can read them. <laughs> <laughs> and can or, can or would read them, perhaps. I mean, you know. There's this shudder through the crowd. And they actually voted that I could not be hired until I wrote a chapter that a committee of citizens could read. <laughs> Yeah, that was both, you know, at the time, kind of scary, you know, will I, will I be able to do this? But then again, it became sort of empowering in the end because 
they not only liked what I wrote, but they published it as a separate um, little publication. That's an amazing. That's an amazing kickoff to a career. I mean, to have that kind of positive input up front. Any 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 peaks or any, any valleys that might be coming after that. You always have that starting point that, hey, I, I did this out of the box. I have this ability. I know I have the capacity to get people to believe in me. That's a huge, huge advantage in starting off a career. Uh, a lot of people don't have that advantage. It doesn't always work that way. Go I ahead, very fortunate. I was fortunate that I was, you know, had the opportunity and was encouraged to do it and had, and had you know, had the, had the proper background, I think. From, yeah. 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 You know, a lot of it goes back to, you know, to our education at Regis in terms of preparing. Well, us, you know. getting to Regis and John, this is I just wanted to go back over here. Yeah. I know well, about your writing. You you were basically an extemp writer. You did you did all the you did all the debate work. I was busy doing original dramatic oratory. You were doing extemp, which was even I think in many ways tougher. Debate speech but extemp and debate required no writing at all. I never wrote for them. You spoke. Well, how do you well, write? Debate, how do you, you write no, you a had, speech? You had all your little cue cards all set up for debate. That was all right. That was but that was not writing. Okay, that was, those were quotations. Okay, those okay. were not writing. No, I mean it's it real. This is interesting to me because nothing in my background would have suggested that I would become someone who wrote. Hmm. I mean, I grew up in a family in which most of the adults did not graduate from high school. Ditto. And those who yeah. did graduate yeah. from high school went, did it through what was described in those days as the commercial track. Um, writing in school, whether elementary school or at Regis or in college, writing was an assignment. The teacher told you you had to do this, and so you did it. And I did it in order to get the grade that I needed. It never occurred to me. I went into graduate school because I wanted to study U.S. history and because I saw these new interpretations of U.S. history as a tool for social change and the activism that I was involved in. And again, didn't think of myself as a writer. And then one day... A group of graduate students are at my apartment. We're putting together a kind of newsletter that the graduate students produced. And one of the students there happened to see one of, you know, my, a paper of mine on the desk. And I guess he started to read it because he then looked at me and said, wow, you're a really good writer. And that had never entered my mind. My grades didn't tell me I was a good writer. It told me I got a good grade. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and then, you know, so really writing it, and, and that was revelatory. It's like, oh, I'm a good writer. Oh, well, maybe I should think about doing this in some way. Um, so, yeah, no, it just, it, I don't know, it, it just, it, it happened very slowly and unexpectedly. And I what I was experiencing of you, what track. I experienced of you, was your capacity to synthesize high speed mm -hmm. in real time, take a mm -hmm. notion, take an idea, put it forward. That, that, that capacity for synthesis, would that have been translated into your writing skills? Does the one, or the, does the one influence the other? Yeah, well, sure. I yeah. mean, you know, when you make that transition and actually think about writing as something that you seriously want to do, 
having the knowledge of how to do research, yeah. how to pull that research together, presented in a way, whether it be in a seven-minute talk or in a 200-page book, yeah. you know, but in a seven-page talk, a seven-minute talk, it's that's a skill that then can get translated into writing. But it didn't occur to me at the time that I was learning the skills that would help me as a writer yeah. because I had no idea what how pe what writers how they did it you know it's like where do all these books that i read come from and then you know it's also in just in terms of people have been talking about sort of the academic world and how it functions even when i was in graduate school and now i'm you know writing um but i ne i never thought of myself as having an academic career uh i mean it took me 11 years to get my PhD. But the reason it took me 11 years to get my PhD is because I didn't think I was writing a dissertation. <laughs> I was always writing a book. And, you know, unlike with most graduate students, my book went into press. My dissertation went into press four months after I got my degree. You're Instead sitting. You're, by the way, you're years. on. You're on a show with someone else who had a similar experience. By the way, Charles, I believe you had a uh, a similar uh, situation. No. Um. Y yes and no. By the way, it's thundering, and uh, you can hear the background noise uh, here in Prague. So, um, with that strike against me, <laughs> I want to say the experience I had as a writer in graduate school and just after graduate school was sort of the opposite. I thought I was pretty good. I thought the publishers, though, were narrow-minded, and for the German listeners among us, they were Fachidioten, which is Max Weber's word for disciplinary idiots. <laughs> and I always have viewed myself as a person with a multidisciplinary disorder, something, however, I cultivate rather than try to extinguish. But this has always worked against me in academia until maybe 10 or 15 years ago when interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary work became more mainstreamed in academia. That was certainly not the case when I got my PhD. Um, and so I had a hard time getting a job in a, in a discipline. So I wound up in multidisciplinary programs, the few that existed. However, going back to a dissertation, this militated against me when I tried to publish my dissertation, which was on the nature of reason and rationality and been supervised by some of the best people in the world in that field. And I sent it off to Oxford University Press and I got a one-sentence rejection letter. Sorry, this isn't right for us. I've been through that already. 30 years later, I learned that Oxford University Press decided a long time ago no longer to publish books in political philosophy because they weren't selling. I didn't know that at the time, but this came as a huge shock to me because... Oxford University Press in the English language had created a field with someone named John Locke and also many other distinguished 
uh, British and American and other thinkers who published with them. And then they just decided to get rid of it. Yeah. And so did the University of California Press, which was my second stop. And so, unlike John, it took me almost 20 years to get my dissertation published. And that was only after I had published many other works. Mm. So people have different trajectories. And it isn't just about contacts. It's about trends in the field. What's in, what's out, what's faddish, what's old-fashioned, what publishers think will make money two years from now, and what they do about what they call books on the back list, meaning books that were published before the current catalog. All these factor in to how publishers make decisions, in addition to several new factors, which I wanted to mention, perhaps some of the others would like to comment on. Those are digital publishing, ebooks, and yet the dreaded chat GPT. Mm. What is the role of the single author, the isolated creative genius, when you have uh, generative artificial intelligence that can produce text, I won't say as good as the text we might create, but a lot quicker, a lot easier, and a lot cheaper. There are professors, uh, there are two professors that I know, two very good friends of mine in Hofstra, both of whom have taken to, and this is within the entire uh, economics department at Hofstra, um, they no longer are allowing students to do take-home exams precisely because of ChatGPT and, and, and AI generally. Uh, has that been an experience, uh, Bill? Have you seen movement in that direction, let's say, at Murray State? And Charles, have you seen it uh, where you are? People basically saying, nope, I don't trust you to do this. You're... And, the, and, the, and the, apparently the capacity to detect that it is, in fact, an AI-produced document isn't quite at a point where, you know... Actually, I was retired when this really began to yeah, hit. Yeah, but now yeah. I'm back to teach one class. I think I've already gotten five lengthy emails about how to detect <laughs> AI generated papers. Have you tried know, have you papers. tried uh, uh, detecting? Well, have I haven't I haven't they just started. I just yeah. came back literally yeah. yesterday was the first yeah. day back. And uh, but no the university community is very aware of it and people are developing um, programs. It's going to be, I guess, AI, our AI program to check versus your AI program to generate, mm -hmm. and they will um, they'll fight it out. Um, but no, it's a real concern, and, and I think it's at a very early stage. And I will, you know, that might be something after I've done it for this semester. We could have a a forum on. What is yeah. because yeah. there's no question that AI can generate things very cheaply. Okay, there but are serious questions about copyright and intellectual uh, property rights that I think are going to have to be addressed. And then the question comes up: how 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 can they possibly be policed? Okay, I'm I mean, so glad I'm so glad I've retired and do not have to deal with that. I am so happy. But you don't. But John, yeah. John, you would not. I can't imagine AI in any way, shape, or form generating from scratch 
if if you said okay here here are my ideas about the memoirs of a uh, of 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 a, of a gay Catholic boy etc cetera, etc cetera, I can't imagine ChatGPT or anything like it generating what ultimately came out to be your book which is an excellent book I could see an AI uh, edit of it possibly I can see would, something but I can't imagine doing cre- what I would think of as creative it's yes it's historic but it's historic creative yeah no but I'm not thinking of it in those terms I'm thinking of it in terms of dealing with students okay. you know, well, okay. and what yeah, students yeah, yeah, might produce yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. You, know yeah. you have an exam question discuss the causes of the American Revolution well th- that's that's AI, AI will knock that out of the park yeah yeah, yeah. You know, write, write a 10 page paper on you know, whether or yeah. not Andrew Jackson was a successful president. There you go. Um, it's right there. You know, you know. All of the standard <laughs> exam questions that we ask yeah. to try to make them think are the most easily corrupted. And and and, uh, and the same thing with so I, this semester. I've, I've given them a very short writing assignment, but I've tried to co- couch it in such a way that I'm encouraging them to write about fairly obscure people who contributed to American history. Can so kids whole- still write? And if they can't write, can they be taught to be good writers? Can you I would teach say someone they can't to write anymore? But I, and I, the jury is out because I'm not sure they want to learn how to write. Um, Do they need they don't write to much, be able they don't to write? write much, at least in Kentucky, they don't write much at all in K to 12. Um, that's all gotten passe. Almost no student can write cursive, which is a real challenge when you write comments on their paper that are, you might as well write them in, in Attic Greek because they just stare at them. And what does that say? And, you know, and that's a real loss. Uh, um, but they're not, no, their writing is terrible. And it's a, it happened in Kentucky deliberately. When I first came, there was a program called CARA, which revised the curriculum and introduced writing, reading standards, all kinds of things. And you could literally see the improvement as the kids came through that program. And then the Republicans gained control of the state, uh, state apparatus, and they basically starved it all and shut it all down. And now they're, some of them are functionally illiterate. So I mean, I'm, I'm trying, you know... Th- it, it, it just irks me to even think that that's the direction we're going in right now. Uh, I'm in, I'm in, uh, okay, I, this is, this, this is, I'm, I, I purposely have kept myself largely out of it from a participant level today, but I, I write fiction. I, I write uh, miniseries. I write uh, uh, fictional novels. I do all that stuff. And I'm coming from pure imagination. And you only can do this stuff if you can imagine and convert your imagination into words and understand how that affects other people and the subtleties and everything that are necessary and, and, the, and just the practice, practice, practice that goes with that. The notion that everything about writing creatively is basically being shunted aside for somebody's political purposes or, you know, they're calling it woke or something to be a decent writer. I don't know. I mean, th- this is... This is a very, very discouraging. Um, oh, it's scary. I mean, you know, when you look at what is happening in Florida and Texas, yeah, there's a deliberate effort to dumb down the population. Why? Why? Why would uh, there be a deliberate they, because effort? Because then they will buy the nonsense that they're spewing. If you don't know the reality of slavery, 
and you don't know the reality of Jim Crow and, and the oppression of black people or the oppression of gay people, or the oppression of others generally, how can you be upset when people are discriminated against now? So that means that we're purposely... If you purposely don't know the history of how bad it was and how hard people fought to get out from under that, you're much e it's much easier to sell you the idea, well, that person's poor because they're lazy. Yeah. Well, that person's poor because they're, you know, they have some kind of moral defect. And, 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 I, and I actually think it is deliberate for the more I read so about... So we, deconstruct, we are deconstructing our democracy for the sake of some group that feels that a dumbed-down group that has no real sense of how our country works or, or how it works at its best with an informed electorate, uh, don't, they are more than willing they're to the, be dumbed down because the, the, it tastes good. The flavor of I mean, dumb call, is made very palatable. those of us who hold them to certain standards snowflakes. Rich, the could snowflake. I interject a, 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 an addendum to the word you just used? We're deconstructing our democracy. I would say we're destructing what's De left okay. of our democracy. Okay. And okay. I further wanted to add use the word deconstructing um that term gained prominence in the late 1980s early to mid 1990s through the deconstructionist movement starting in france with Jacques derrida and then spreading to universities in the u.s like yale and, and uc irvine and the reason i mention this is there was a very famous article published at the time by deconstruction is called the death of the author, and I don't want to go into the Charles. Repeat that title again. I, you're, 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 the death of the author. Okay, got a little garbled for a second. At, yeah. at the time, it was meant metaphorically, in terms of the way in which language works. Yeah. Now I think it's becoming literally true, in that gradually you're going to see and or already seeing not just the replacement of student originality with artificially generated text, but I think you're going to also see the gradual elimination of individual creativity from the Ryerly process as a whole. And that's for a whole bunch of political and economic reasons, meaning it's much simpler and easier to deal with the generated text written by an algorithm than to deal with a human being who needs money. And some of you may be aware of the contretemps, the dispute between the Authors Guild and publishers <laughs> about the use of uh, AI and digital technology and whether royalties accrue still to humans, which they don't to computers, and therefore it's much more cost-effective of course, to have computers do the writing than to have humans because you save a lot of money. And well, I see that uh, continuing and expanding. Well, Isn't that one of the issues in the, in the strikes in Hollywood is um, yeah, the, um, the way the system now is being skewed against the, the creative um, people involved in exploiting their work and by because they just go back to the collection of things that have been written and generated sure. in the script. Two, two points on that. 
the the WG, the, the Writers Guild of America, basically one of its demands, of course, is that is that AI be controlled and that there be copyrightable. Uh, the sources become known if they're going to be used at all. But the other thing is, uh, you know, whereas many of us or I think a lot of people have been speaking of AI as though it is this sudden thing that came up and wow, we never saw this coming. The more I'm hearing this conversation, the more I'm feeling is that AI is merely filling in or, or f providing a service that is demanded when creativity and writing skills are basically on the decline. If you don't have the ability to do it well and you still want it to be reasonably readable, well, you probably won't notice too much that it's the, wor the worst derivative crap in the world and half of what's written in Hollywood is derivative crap anyway. Most of what goes on air or goes in, in streaming services, but I'm not gonna, I don't wanna get too long into that. <laughs> I, I think we're at the beginning of what could be the second hour of this discussion, but I but I don't think we're going to have time to do that right now. Um, I do know that there's a lot more to talk about here, and uh, and I and I really appreciate you guys being around for it. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't see any answers. I you guys have raised the questions wonderfully. Uh, but the answer to how do we create writers, what will writers do in the future, what will AI do that writers couldn't, will we be able to function as a society with all of that, we're on the next situation over here. So I am going to at this point say uh, thank you uh, to uh, Bill Mulligan and to John D'Amelio and to Charles Webble and uh, for a marvelous uh, bit of discussion over here. Uh, I do hope that anyone listening to this show get back to us. It, the information is there on the website www.centerlefttalkradio, uh, and uh, we will continue all this. But what we normally do when we're stopping a segment is uh, we end it always with a little jazz. <laughs> 